Listen to C4 scientist Terry Sunderland speak to Judy Liu from Bioversity International about forest genetic resources at the Forest Asia Summit 2014. For more information, go to our website, c4.org, or follow us on Facebook and Twitter. So Judy, tell us why forest genetic resources are important and um, why should we care? Well, forest genetic resources are the, it, it's the genetic diversity in tree species that is of current or potential value to people. That's the, the official definition of forest genetic resources. It's the evolutionary potential. It constitutes the evolutionary potential for tree species, which is very important um, under environmental change. Um, genetic resources, genetic diversity is really what has allowed tree species to persist over millions of years in some cases under um, many changing climates, changing conditions. And it's, it's important to, to think about managing forest genetic resources now because um, there are many challenges, including climate change, but also loss of habitat, fragmentation, as populations of trees become isolated and smaller, genetic diversity is lost and the potential for evolutionary change or adaptation to change is lost. So it's also, of course, really important for improvement. Um, for example, many of the planting programs, the commercial um, timber planting programs are based on genetically improved material. There have been very substantial improvements made in just two or three generations based on genetic variability. And um, of course, we know the potential for improving fruit and other sources of food through genetic improvement. Okay, so how do you, how do you measure that, that variation? How do you measure that variety in terms of tree genetic resources? I mean, is there a, a yardstick? How would you explain to a layperson, you know, the, the variety of gen genes within a species mm -hmm. play those in, important roles you've just described? Well, there are a number of different ways of measuring. Um, when we talk about measuring traits or looking at the variability of traits, what we can actually see, um, it's, it's the same kind of thing as measuring differences in crop yields, um, measuring the actual characteristics of trees, fruit size, fruit abundance, exam for example, for, for food tree species, growth rate, timber yield. So that there are, if, if um, trees are planted in, with proper environmental or proper experimental design, the environmental variability can be separated from the genetic variability and, um, and the heritability or the degree to which um, traits are genetically inherited can be determined. Um, and so the amount of variability in a particular trait can be evaluated. Um, of course, a lot of work now is being done at the genetic marker molecular level. Um, in many cases, the molecular markers that are used are actually neutral, so they're not associated with particular traits, but they can still tell us a lot about the genetic variability. Um, they can tell us about the population structure, whether there is more variability within populations or between populations. 
um, whether inbreeding is happening. Um, so they can be, these, more, these neutral markers can be really helpful in designing conservation plans. Um, more and more now, um, scientists are trying to attach the molecular markers to actual traits. Mm -hmm. And so the whole field of genomics is moving very fast. Of course, it's farther along for crop plants than it is for tree species, but, um, but there's really rapid advancement these days. And so um, already in some cases, it's possible to associate traits with genomic markers. And more and more in the future, we'll be able to look at variability in that way. So the, so the traits that you're referring to are basically involved with in, inferring disease resist, resistance, um, growth rates, growth rates um, high yielding fruits, or, or whatever. Um, how do you go, around, go about selecting those traits? I mean, what field work do you have to do in, in, the, in the wild to actually recognize these, these traits in individual species? Well, it's, um, the first step is identifying the species to work with, because of course there are many, many tree species, most of which very little is actually known about. Um, so it starts with, if, if we were going to um, a location in Central Africa, for example, the first step is determine what species are important to people. Mm -hmm. um, and then it's very important to work with local people to determine what, ver what variability they have seen, um, what, is, what is important to them in terms of the traits that, that they're interested in. Um, and then the selection process is quite, it's, it's similar to crop breeding or animal breeding in terms of selecting the best individuals and then either mass producing those with trees. Um, it, in many cases, fruit trees, for example, in many cases they can be mass produced by vegetative propagation. Um, in the case of most of the timber species, they are they're mass produced through breeding and selection at each generation, so um, controlled breeding collecting pollen from one tree and crossing it with another tree that um, they each have characteristics that we're interested in combining, for example, and then using the seed. Um, it's a slow process because trees are long-lived. It, it takes several years before they start producing seed, so it's quite different from crop breeding in that way. But, um, but rapid improvement can be made. I mean, in terms of numbers of generations. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned local people. I mean, there must have been generations of selection of many species that are useful mm -hmm. to people. So I guess many farmers and other uh, rural people give you a, pretty much a head start in some ways. Yeah. Um, certainly in, in some parts of the world, um, a great deal of selection was carried out before scientists ever got involved. You know, thinking about um, the commercially important fruit tree species that we mm -hmm. use today. I think, um, well, Central Asia is an area where, where we work, for example, and there are um, a ancestral number. Home of apples and pears and yes, ancestral home of apples, pears. It's a center of origin, central of diversity. So the wild diversity there is still immense. But um, for 
millions of years, people have been selecting the best and selecting different varieties and, and changing that resource in ways that are useful to people. That's an area, though, where um, it's very important to understand and conserve the existing wild diversity because the environments where those wild populations are still persisting is, is quite harsh. And um, in, with climate change, those, those individuals or populations that can survive those harsh conditions may be extremely valuable in the whole scope of things. In terms of conserving these genetic resources, there are some schools of thought that you look at in situ um, conservation and some that look at ex situ conservation. For example, seed banks. What's your view on, on uh, the development of these very expensive, sort of high tech seed banks in, in Norway and, and in, at Kew, for example? Well, I think that um, there's a place for both. I would say for most tree species, in situ is the way to go. Um, for a variety of reasons, partly because they are so long-lived, often the seed is really big. Sometimes the seed cannot be stored using conventional methods because it, it can't um, tolerate being dried to the level that it would have to be dried or frozen. Um, but there is a place for seed banks for, for species that, that can be stored using using conventional seed banks or even using cryogenic approaches. When populations of, of species have become so diminished that there is a danger that they'll disappear in the wild. So I, I think um, those decisions have to be made carefully and certainly I would never advocate trying to get all tree species into seed banks. Um, for one, one reason is then people might think the job is done and they could relax on the in-situ populations, which would be a big mistake. So Judy, um, obviously you work for, for biodiversity, but you obviously work with a whole range of different partners. I'm sure you work with development partners as well as other research organizations. It's um, clear that for most of us who work with these institutions, you know, we can only do so much and it's through partnerships that we have impact. Mm -hmm. So can you say a little bit about the, the work that you do and the types of partners you work with and the types of impact you anticipate from the type of research you're doing? Right. Um, well, in a number of our projects, um, we have significant partnership with, uh, with both C4 and ECRAF. And um, I think I think that that collaboration has really strengthened over the years, over recent years, and um, and it has brought uh, it, it's made us much stronger in a sense. It's it's brought a much greater critical mass to to issues. Um, we tend to focus on um, primarily genetic resources of wild populations, and um, ECRAF fo focuses on agro or not, yeah, agroforestry. So, you know, they're, they're sort of at the end of taking it to the farm, um, the domestication side of it. And, and C4 is more into policy and the social science aspects. And to look at um, the whole package, it's, it's very important to have all of those components. So, um, so working in collaboration with, with both C4 and ECRAF is really important. Of course, we have other, um, partners and collaborators as well. Um, in every country where we work, we're working with national partners who um, are 
very important in terms of identifying the situation on the ground and, and also helping us to achieve the impact. Um, we, we clearly can't have impact as international organizations trying to change something in this country. It, it needs to involve the, the local people, um, institutions in the country that, that know the local situation and can carry it forward after the research part of it ends. Um, with respect to the kind of impact that we expect to have, um, well, for example, in Central Asia, we have a project where we're working on three of those um, fruit and nut tree species, and we're hoping that um, the efforts to conserve wild populations will be strengthened as a result of identifying both um, the pattern of genetic diversity in these populations and also differences in, in nutrient um, characteristics of the populations of the species. So, so that's where we are um, aiming for a change in the way these resources are managed that will result in greater sustainability. And in the context of the food security debate, at the moment we're, we're talking about diverse diets, nutrition, I'm presuming, well, our work at C4 has shown that there's a, a, a strong link between tree cover and, and child nutrition and, and, and health. I'm presuming that your work also shows the same um, kind of results, that trees can improve dietary diversity and nutrition, and I'm sure that your work feeds into that. In terms of changing the way we think about food production and food security, you know, what, how can we promote this, this paradigm shift, if you like, to thinking about trees in terms of food security and nutrition? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. I think that um, raising awareness, I think the facts are there. Um, I know there's um, one of my favorite recent facts comes from a pen study that showed that um, people's livelihoods, the, the rural poor, receive almost exactly as much um, in terms of livelihoods from wild species as from agriculture. Mm -hmm. And those kinds of facts need to get out there. So um, I, think, I think awareness is the big thing because um, we come from a background, you and I, where trees were the enemy. You know, wilderness had to be cleared to make land to produce food. And, um, and that, that sort of um, mindset, that sort of perspective, I think still subliminally runs through the minds of researchers and, and the minds of um, policymakers. And, and that, I, I think it's very important that that be turned around because not only for food security, but um, for all of the ecosystem services that trees provide, including carbon, the fact that there is, there's probably as much carbon in forests as there is in all of the atmosphere. And so if we continue to, to lose forests at the rate that they're being lost, we're in big trouble. I sort of kiss humanity goodbye. <laughs> So in terms of raising awareness, this is something you, you raised uh, when you spoke earlier. What are the kind of things that, that biodiversity does to, to raise awareness of tree genetic resources and, and, and why are they important? Well, one of the things that we have been working on over the last few years is collaborating with FAO on developing the first ever State of the World's Forest Genetic Resources Report. Um, also helping to develop the Global Plan of Action and promoting that, that um, 
It's a, it's a plan of action for um, conservation, sustainable use, and development of forest genetic resources. Um, I think this is, this is a, um, a body of work that is aimed not, not just at scientists, not just at, um, at practitioners of, you know, people who are already familiar with, with genetic resources. The aim is to get it out, um, get the elements of the Global Plan of Action integrated into national forestry plans, um, international conventions, um, various levels. Maybe that's, it's a little late to get it into um, conventions, but into the work packages that are being developed at this point. So, um, so that's one of the things. Of course, we, we produce materials. Um, we, are, we have a capacity development um, series that's, that's called Forest Genetic Resources Training Guide a modular approach to um, using case studies to, to teach and learn about um, the importance of and how to manage, how to conserve forest genetic resources. So we use a, a number of different approaches. Thank you for okay. speaking to us today. Thank you. Thank you.